thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week, we're looking at chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, or as it's also known, ME. Sufferers describe debilitating fatigue, pain and other symptoms that go on for months or even years without a clear cause or definitive treatment. Some people believe it's a physical illness, while others think it may be in the mind. So what does the latest research say? Some intriguing findings are now surfacing. We've had patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, and we've had them exercising in the MRI scanner We've been able to show that patients with fatigue accumulate lots of acid within their muscles when they exercise and um, have difficulty getting rid of that acid when they finish exercising. We'll also hear what a recent post-mortem study on a group of CFS patients has revealed and discuss whether there might be a genetic link to the disorder. I'm Kat Arney and with me is Chris Smith. Hello. And in the news this week, how a carnivorous plant and an ant species have teamed up together to share the food they catch. Scientists are saying it's a first. And also the missile-hurling chimp that plans ahead how he's going to attack visitors to his zoo. What a pleasant fellow. And also an unusual cause of climate change. Dinosaurs with the wind. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. So to kick off our look at chronic fatigue syndrome, we're joined by Dr Esther Crawley, a clinician and a researcher who works on the condition. And she's based at the University of Bristol. Hi, Esther. Hi, Kat. Let's start by just really going back to basics. What exactly do we mean by chronic fatigue syndrome? What is this disorder? Well, patients with chronic fatigue syndrome are, first of all, very disabled by very significant and difficult fatigue. And then they usually have a variety of other symptoms. So one of the most common symptoms, for example, is headaches, which are very difficult and often constant. They often have muscle and joint aches and pains. Uh, I mainly see children and teenagers, and they often start off by feeling very, very sick, particularly first thing in the morning, and dizzy. Sore throats and swollen lymph nodes are also some of the symptoms. And one of the problems with this illness is it comes and goes and it affects people differently in different days uh, and it can cycle by days or by weeks or by months. It's a very, very difficult and disabling condition. Um, who normally gets this disorder? Because I remember when it sort of rose to prominence um, a couple of decades ago, people referred to it as yuppie flu. But I understand that's not actually really the sort of people that it affects. Well, it can affect everybody. It tends to be more common in women. Uh, in fact, it uh, tends to be more common in those of lower socioeconomic class, so more deprived uh, families. And there's reasonable evidence now that it's also, certainly in this country, it's more common in ethnic minorities. And you can look for this condition everywhere, and every country that you look for it, you're going to find it. And the poorer the country, the more common it seems to be. So, in fact, it's quite the reverse of yuppie flu. It's a, an illness of social deprivation, not of wealth. It's just the yuppies, the rich people, are more likely to be successful in seeking health care. And what sort of health care is available? There's, there's no medical treatment. What sort of treatments or, or interventions might be available for it at the moment? Well, there are no magic pills for it at the moment. Uh, there are some medications that help with pain and there are some medications that some patients find helpful with sleep. But mainly treatment focuses on improving quality of sleep and improving activity and exercise in a very, very gentle way uh, to get patients back to doing the things they want to do. 
What's actually causing CFS? What what makes someone develop this disorder? Well, we don't know what the cause is, and I think it's really important to start at the at the beginning of your programme by saying it's quite likely that it's not just one illness. Uh, certainly all the research in adults has shown that it's there's probably between three and five different types of illness that present with different groups of symptoms. And so it may well be that uh, fatigue and the symptoms I describe might be the sort of end pathway. And in children, uh, we've also described between three and four different types of illness. And so what, what do we know about it? Well, we know that in many people it's triggered off by an infection. And uh, some research has shown that it's the severity of the initial infection rather than the actual type of infection that's important. But we also see a similar problem with fatigue after other types of insults. So, for example, we're quite interested in what happens to patients after they have uh, treatment for cancer. Also, we quite often see it in other illnesses. So, you know, if you get very, very ill with diabetes, for example, quite a lot of children after that develop a very similar looking illness. So I think that uh, you need a big hit, but also there's good evidence to show that in both children and adults, uh, people are what we call genetically vulnerable. So you're probably born with genes that make you uh, vulnerable to fatigue, and then you need an environmental insult to set it all off. What kind of evidence do you have that there may be a genetic component to this? There's different types of studies, and the most convincing are twin studies. Interestingly, it looks like children are more genetically vulnerable than adults. So if you're monozygotic twins, if you're identical twin and one of you gets it, you're much more likely that the other one will get it than if you're a diazygotic, uh, where you're only going to share half the DNA. So basically, if if you develop it as a child, it's more likely that it had a stronger genetic component to it? Yes, so you only needed one or two viruses and then you set the whole thing off. Whereas as an adult, it looks like probably you need to have the genetic, the genes and then you need other things. So, for example, we know that in adults, if you're depressed in your 40s, you're more likely to get it in your 50s. And that just doesn't seem to be true in children. So in adults, you need a variety of things together at the same time as well as the infection to set the whole thing off. What do you think is going on with the the infection? You talk about someone having an infection. It doesn't matter what's infected them. Do we have any clues about what's going on in the immune system? Well, there are a lot of studies that have looked at the immune system and it's quite difficult to interpret exactly what's going on. I mean, clearly people with chronic fatigue syndrome, when you look at the immune system, it seems to be very different to controls. It's difficult to interpret because there are also lots of other differences going on. So, for example, they're more sedentary, so they're not doing as much exercise as healthy controls. I mean, we believe the way forward is by doing very, very large studies, uh, looking at the genetic material from thousands and thousands of patients because, of course, you need very large studies because there are different types of illness and looking at blood in, in a large number of patients. But also we're using uh, longitudinal cohorts, so looking at uh, DNA and blood and also other factors before people get ill to try and work out what the causes are and also what we call the maintenance factors, so what keeps you sick. So if you think you can understand some of the pointers that might be be causing it or indicating that it's about to happen, do you think you could help prevent people developing CFS in in the first place? Well, I mean, I think that's why we're looking at it. Uh, and also, we don't have any medical treatment, so understanding more about the causes might help us develop that. But I think there's other things that you can do as well. So we're quite interested in what's called early intervention studies. So if you, for example, in children, if you can identify children as they start to become unwell with this illness, then what teenagers tell us is if they get the right advice very early on, they believe they could stop it becoming a long-term illness. So I think there's definitely a role for looking at early intervention studies in both teenagers and there's also studies in Bristol going on in adults, seeing if you can prevent it becoming a long-term problem. Well, so what sort of interventions are you talking about in these cases? Well, the teenagers tell us that the most useful thing that they wish they'd known right at the beginning is advice about sleep. So what happens when you get chronic fatigue syndrome is you feel very, very awful and very, very tired. And instinctively, when you feel tired, you lengthen your sleep. And so a lot of teenagers end up sleeping from between 12 and 20 hours. The problem with lengthening the time that you're asleep is that the quality of your sleep deteriorates, so you feel more tired so you lengthen it again and that reduces the quality. You also end up with uh, changing your wake up time and changing your wake up time changes uh, 
the cortisol that's released in the brain. So cortisol is a type of steroid. And uh, for those of us without chronic fatigue syndrome, we usually get a cortisol hit in the morning and that helps us feel awake. If you're constantly changing your wake-up time, then you, we think that that's one of the reasons why it ends up being quite flat in teenagers with chronic fatigue syndrome. So we give quite simple advice about keeping your sleep at night very short and making sure you always wake up at the same time. And teenagers often find that, you know, really really makes a big difference to them. And what they say is that they wish they'd had that advice very early on because their view is that it would prevent them uh, getting as sick as they get. It sounds absolutely fascinating with a disease that's extremely complex. So um, that's Esther Crawley from the University of Bristol. And incidentally, Esther is with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions for her or any other comments or feedback for the programme, chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. One problem with a condition like chronic fatigue syndrome is how do you quantify fatigue? Moreover, how can it be explained in terms of an underlying disease process? Professor Julia Newton from Newcastle University works mainly as an elderly care doctor, but it was in studying a problem common amongst the elderly that she stumbled upon a surprising link with chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm actually a geriatrician by training. My clinical work focuses on patients with blackouts and falls, generally in older people. So what's the association between going from working with people who were falling over and feeling very faint to chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, the common thing is blood pressure regulation, and I'm particularly interested in the autonomic nervous system. So that's the subconscious nervous system that controls things like your respiration, your heart pumping, your bowels and your bladder working. And the particular area of that that um, interests me is blood pressure, so the head of steam that keeps the blood pumping around your body. And if that doesn't happen effectively enough and your blood pressure drops, at the extreme end of things, you'll black out. And at the more subtle end of things, then not enough blood gets to not only your brain, but your heart, your muscles and the other organs. And that's what I believe leads to the symptom of fatigue. So how did you make that association in the first place, that you've got this cohort of old people who very frequently do get problems with their blood pressure going up and down in ways it shouldn't? How did you link that to a group of people who have this entity, chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, it's really talking to your patients, actually. And it became clear, having seen patients with blackouts and falls for um, a number of years, that actually they were experiencing symptoms that were very familiar to me from seeing patients with um, fatigue-associated diseases. And so we set about quantifying how much fatigue patients with blackouts were experiencing. And lo and behold they actually had a lot more fatigue than you would have imagined. And that if we treated their blackouts and made the blood pressure drops less, their fatigue appeared to be less. So it looked like there was a spectrum of disease at the extreme end with patients with blackouts and at the more subtle end, patients who were just experiencing the symptom of fatigue. We then went to patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and other fatigue-associated diseases and began to think about whether or not they might be experiencing more blackouts than we would have anticipated. And when we actually asked patients, lo and behold, yes, blackouts were much more common than we would have expected in patients with fatigue-associated diseases. But lots of old people have blackouts. They don't all have the other manifestations of chronic fatigue. So are we dealing with two different things, or is there an area which is an overlap between the two different conditions. They both have a sort of common origin in terms of the the blood pressure problem. I think that that's absolutely right. I think what we're seeing is an underlying pathophysiological phenomena that is common to the two diseases. And if you do some tests, can you see very characteristic similarities between the changes that happen in the blood pressure control of the people with the chronic fatigue and elderly people who have these problems from time to time? We tend to find that blood pressure drops quite precipitously when people stand up. So what I think is it's the physiological stress of standing that is a problem in patients with both falls and blackouts and fatigue-associated problems. When we stand up, 700 mils of blood drops into our legs. So to try and compensate for that, there's a microsecond response trying to push your blood pressure up to where it needs to be, which is your head, 
to do that, we make our heart go a little bit faster and our peripheral blood vessels constrict. And if that doesn't happen fast enough, that means that we're not getting enough blood to where it needs to be. So if you ask groups of patients with chronic fatigue if they have these symptoms, what fraction of them will say, yes, I do suffer faints and blackouts and that kind of thing? If we actually ask them about symptoms when they stand up, we've shown that almost 90% of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome will have symptoms when they stand up of lightheadedness and dizziness. And when we actually ask people about blackouts, then 56% of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome ME will describe a history of, of loss of consciousness. What's actually going on in the muscles of people who are suffering with these changes in in blood flow? Because if you've got a change in blood pressure, you're continuously escalating and reducing blood flow and perfusion to muscles, which presumably makes their metabolism hard for, for the muscle cells to control. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that we've been studying here in Newcastle. We've done some MRI-based studies now where we've had patients with chronic fatigue syndrome ME and fatigue-associated other diseases and we've had them exercising in the MRI scanner and using that technology we've been able to show that patients with fatigue accumulate lots of acid within their muscles when they exercise and um, have difficulty getting rid of that acid from their muscles when they finish exercising. And the next step with those studies are some laboratory-based studies. So we've begun to take cells from muscle biopsies in patients with CFSME and grow those muscle cells in the laboratory so these cells aren't being influenced by anything else within the human. They're then exercised to a known amount of exercise to see how they respond and we've developed something called a nanosensor technology that will put small nanosensors across the cell wall of the muscle cells without destroying the cell and then these nanosensors will fluoresce at various different pHs within the cells as the cells exercise. And that's going to enable you to see these fluxes in acid, the accumulation or, or loss of acid according to how the blood flow is changing. How do you know, though, that the muscle changes you're seeing are downstream of a nerve problem and not just two independent things which are both just characteristic of people with chronic fatigue? That's a really good question, one that I guess asked all the time. Is that this just because patients with fatigue aren't exercising and they become what's called deconditioned? Um, and that's why these laboratory experiments are so important because these cells can't be influenced by deconditioning. And the MRI studies have allowed us to show that the severity of the acid accumulation is directly related to the degree of um, abnormality with the autonomic nervous system. What that actually means we still need to explore in more detail and whether it's just a problem of vascular runoff i.e. the blood vessels are not working well enough to get rid of the acid as the muscles exercise or whether or not it's a problem of the transporters on the cell walls of muscle cells um, that are actively engaged in getting rid of acid from the cells and we know that a number of those are under the control of the autonomic nervous system. So we do need to do more experiments to see where the abnormality lies and therefore where we could target treatments that would be of benefit to the symptoms experienced by patients. And based on these experiments in the muscle cells, can you manipulate the outcome? Can you reverse it? Well, we've got very exciting pilot data now that um, suggests that, yes, we can. Um, when we've used a number of medications in the laboratory, so taking the cells in the test tube and seeing whether we can reverse the acid that accumulates within the cells, then, yes, we can. So I would say at the moment we're in a very optimistic place that if we begin to tease out these pathways of metabolism that we can begin to look at identifying specific abnormalities that we could direct drugs at and that's part of what we're aiming to do with the Action for ME fellowship that we've been awarded. Julia Newton, she's the Clinical Professor of Ageing and Medicine at the University of Newcastle. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Oni. And we'll continue looking into chronic fatigue syndrome in just a minute with a look at some of the cellular mechanisms underlying the disease. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's leading scientific breakthroughs. To kick off, what's your story, Chris? Well, I've got the first example here of a plant ant tag team that works together to provide food for the pair of them. Now, people are familiar with the idea of ants swarming all over plants and things, and and actually some plants make it more homely for ants by providing little structures called dormatia. These are things like hollow thorns that you find in acacias, and the ants live in those. And by encouraging ants to swarm all over the plants, the plants get the benefit of the ants defending the plant, because if other insects or if termites or even big elephants try and take a bite out of the plant, the ants swarm all over them. This is different. It's a paper which is published this week in the journal PLOS One. It's by a researcher from the University of Montpellier 2, Vincent Bazile. And what he and his colleagues have done in northwestern Borneo is they've been studying pitcher plants. Now, the pitcher family is a very big family of carnivorous plants. You've probably seen pictures of them. They have these dangling pitchers which have a layer of water inside the pitcher and usually a slippery rim, and insects fall in and they then break down in the digestive juices which are trapped in the pitcher, and the plant then absorbs the nutrients which are released from the insects or whatever falls into the trap's body, and the plant then uses that material to grow. What's different here is that this particular species of pitcher plant is called Nepenthes bicalorata. This is teamed up with one exclusive, unique type of ant. It's called Componitus schmitzi. These ants only live, it turns out, on this type of pitcher plant. And the pitcher plant provides a hollow tendril that the ants can live in, so they have a home there. It also feeds them sugar. It's got little nectaries that secrete sugar solution that the ants can drink. So effectively that's the field kitchen to feed your army of ants that you've barracked on your plant. The thing is, the ants get their carbs there. How do they get their protein? Well, this is the really amazing thing. What the team did when they studied this is they find that the ants hide under the rim of the pitcher. So if you imagine your toilet, you know the bit where the water comes out? Well, there's a rim there, isn't there? The ants go up under there. And when things come by and and are wandering around the top of the pitcher plant, the ants come out and they push them in. And the insects and other prey fall into the pitcher, but these ants can swim. And they swim across the fluid, they retrieve the prey item, and they eat it. And you'd think, well, that doesn't sound very good for the plant, does it? Because the ants are nicking the plant's food. But actually, the ants then defecate into the pitcher plant, hence my reference to toilet earlier, and they also contribute the carcasses of dead ants. And as a result, the ants are effectively lending the plant the benefit of their much superior digestive system. And so what this group of researchers have done is to look at plants that do have the ants living on them and compare them with plants that don't have the ants living on them to see whether they come off better. The results are really clear. Basically, plants that have the ants growing on them have pitchers that have got twice as much biomass in terms of prey in them. The pitchers are twice as big. The plants contain much greater leaf area, meaning they're growing better. They have three times as much nitrogen in the plants. In other words, when you break down an insect, then you actually get the nitrogenous material out of the insect, and that's what the plants need to grow. And in fact, when they did analysis, they found that 75% in some cases of the nitrogen in the plant has come through the ants in this way. And as they say in their paper, this mixed strategy represents an outstanding adaptation for the exploitation of nutrient-poor soils and is, to our knowledge, unique in the plant kingdom. Isn't it amazing? Ain't nature wonderful? Uh, another interesting story from the natural world. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have a pension plan, Chris, or plan ahead at all. I did have one, but uh, it was an NHS <laughs> pension, so basically I'm now contributing some humongous amount of my salary to, to maintain it. Uh, for nothing. But we do tend to think that planning ahead is purely a human behaviour, but the antics of a chimp called Santino in Furovic Zoo in Sweden are challenging that assumption. And three years ago, Santino hit the headlines when researchers found that he was gathering stones into piles before the zoo opened in the morning, ready to pelt at visitors. Now, not only is this rather cheeky, but it looked like he was actively planning ahead for the day's assaults. Sounds iffy to me. People are a bit sceptical about the idea of the chimp planning the attack. Yeah, some researchers did argue that Santino wasn't actually planning ahead, but instead he was just repeating what he'd learnt to do as a result of spending time in the zoo. But now some new observations from Matthias Osvath and Ellen Carvonen, and they've published in the journal PLOS One this week, suggest that Santino is indeed a forward planning as well as a rather cheeky monkey or rather chimp before any pedants complain to us. OK, so what did they actually see? What have they written up? 
Well, the researchers watched groups of visitors to Santino's enclosure and they saw him threatening the visitors with stones. Obviously, the people backed off. But when they went closer again, Santino was holding stones, but just playing it cool, you know, doing his chimp thing, having a bit of food. But then suddenly he threw a stone at the visitor group as if he'd been planning to trick them. And the researchers also saw Santino hide stones under handfuls of hay or behind logs in prime spots for throwing. So visitors wouldn't spot these missiles as they approached, suggesting that he knew visitors would come and was still planning to attack them. Is this really evidence of forward planning, though? Well, the scientists who've done these observations, they argue that Santino didn't hide stones like this before 2010 and that it shows that he is forward planning. Now, sceptics still obviously aren't entirely convinced and they argue that it's hard to interpret his behaviour to this degree and that he might be hiding the stones for another reason. He's just one chimp. He may not be representative of the rest of the species. So while these observations hint at the fact that at least one chimp out there may be planning for the future, there's still a lot more work to be done to figure out whether chimps or any other animals can actively plan ahead. Though, even if they can, I don't think they'll be buying into a pension plan anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Although, Nikki Clayton, who's a neuroscientist who works at Cambridge University, she's got very compelling evidence that scrub jays, birds she dubs feathered Einsteins, can definitely plan for the future. She has a bird motel with a room where they always get fed and a a room where they always get locked to sleep with no food. And she finds that these cheeky birds know that they're going to be locked in the room with no food and so they start hiding food in the bedroom. Ah, very clever. Now also this week, scientists at Cambridge University have identified a signal that controls the activity of brown fat. That's a special kind of adipose tissue that's used to generate heat in the body by burning calories. And it's thought that boosting the activity of this brown fat could help people to lose weight. So people think it could be a very important therapeutic target. Dr Andrew Whittle is from the Metabolic Research Laboratory at Cambridge University and is with us to tell us about this piece of work, which is published this week in the journal Cell. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Chris. So fats aren't all made equal, then? We're not just one blob of adipose. There are different types of fat that do different jobs. Definitely not just one type of fat, no. And and, uh, we've known for a long time that in small children, small babies, uh, and also small animals like mice, you have this other type of fat, which isn't the white fat that stores all the fat, but instead it, it looks brown in appearance because it has lots of these mitochondria, the powerhouses, if you like, of the cell. And it was thought for a long time this wasn't present in adult humans, but research over recent years, has, thanks to new imaging techniques, allowed us to find and locate active depots of this brown fat in adult humans as well. And where do you find it? Very much in a similar location to where you find it in small animals, so around the shoulder blade areas and in sort of um, behind the collarbone in the bottom of the neck. And its role is chiefly just to burn energy in order to make you hot? Yeah, I would say the prime reason that brown adipose tissue exists is that it's evolved to help to maintain core body temperature. So as mammals, we depend on maintaining that temperature to to function properly, and it's very important. And this tissue helps animals to do that. And if it burns calories, of course, it's another way of of getting rid of excess energy. And one of the things that we're very good at, although looking at the population these days, you, you could be fooled into thinking we're not, Actually, we're very good at regulating body mass, aren't we? Because despite, in some cases, eating huge amounts of excessive uh, food and then the next day eating too little, we keep our weight, despite these dramatic changes, really quite stable. Is it because it gets dumped into this brown fat and the excess calories do get burned off and you, you just turn them into waste heat? It's, it's possible, but I think we don't have the evidence to suggest exactly how brown fat is regulated in, in that kind of way in humans in terms of how it's acute regulation. But it's, it's potential that some of those calories are being burned in brown fat. Certainly in animals, like uh, in in mouse models, we know that you can stimulate the brown fat more if you feed a high-calorie diet, so it does respond to that. And you've found a signal that enables you to manipulate the activity of that fat, how metabolically active it is, how many calories it is burning off. Yeah, so basically the protein we identified, um, it seems to prime the brown fat to be able to respond better to the uh, traditional nervous activation of the tissue. So when you take this protein away, the brown fat is less able to to burn calories to, to activate itself to make heat. So under normal circumstances, a signal comes, what, from the brain via nerve cells into the brown fat and tells it right now you have to to ramp up your metabolic rate and there's an additional cue, which is the one you found. We think this protein is sort of a, a mechanism to enhance the impact of this heat production. So when you have prolonged exposure to a cold environment or the, the body senses or the brain senses that you're eating a much higher calorie diet, in order to get even more heat out of the brown adipose tissue, it starts to make this protein, this bone morphogenetic protein 8B, which is the one we've, we found, uh, or BMP8B, 
and that enables the tissue to respond to a greater extent to the same level of nervous stimulation. Where does that signal come from? Does it come from the brain and go in the bloodstream or does it come out of nerve cells or, or a combination of the two? The BMP8B is made by the brown fat itself. In fact, one of the very interesting things we found in the paper is that BMP8B is very specific in terms of where it's made. So uh, it's only really made in, in the brown fat and we found some in the brain as well, was present in the brain. We went on to look at that and also the only other place we really detected meaningful amounts was in the testes. Wow. So does that explain then why, why women tend to gain more weight than... Then, if you look in the population, you do find a higher fraction of women who tend to put on a bit more weight because, it, I mean, it benefits them to do so from a child-rearing point of view, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, wh- whether that's because of the, the la- they don't have as much BMP8B because they don't have it being produced in the testes, I, whether that's the reason, I, I doubt it very much. I think there's lots more, of the, there's many more differences about women that, that may drive that difference in the, in the weight gain phenotype, if you like. But would then the, the BMP8B, would that come out of the testes or the brain or, or other tissues and make its way in the blood to the brown fat? Will it see that signal and respond to it or, or is that just going to wash around and do other things in the body? The, the previous evidence from BMPs is that they act mainly in a more autocrine or paracrine manner. So they, they're not secreted like hormones generally. So, and we think that in BMPB's case, that's probably the case at the moment. We don't have any evidence to suggest otherwise. And, it, and it's enough that it's made in, in such large amounts in the adipose tissue that it, it functions there. But also we found that it's, it's, it's present in the brain. And as well as this ability of the BMPB to improve how much heat the brown fat makes in the periphery, um, we found that actually when you put BMP8B into the brain, you get a very specific central effect. So the, actually, the actual BMP8B in the brain stimulates more nervous uh, activation as well. So it hits on both levels. It, effectively, it's turning up the thermostat in your body, isn't it? Yeah. So what is the BMP8B actually doing in the adipose tissue? Is it just triggering other cells and saying, right, turn up your metabolic rate? And if that's the case, how does it actually get made? What's the signal that tells the fat to make it? Well, we think the signal in brown fat to make BMPAB is just the fact that you get this nervous activation of the tissue saying, come on, we need to make heat, we need to stay warm. And in order to do that more efficiently, that the tissue sets itself up to make as much heat as possible. So the BMPAB in the tissue sensitizes it to the adrenergic stimulation. It sets up all the enzymes that need to be there ready to burn the fat and basically just ramps everything up a notch so you get more heat production. And can we simulate that effect? Are there drugs that can mimic that effect? Because if you could pop a pill and just make your brown fat more active, you could burn off excess calories if you're trying to lose weight or or you had a heavy night last night and you think, I feel a bit guilty now, I'd like to, to shed the excess caloric burden. There are certainly drugs that already exist that hit the sympathetic nervous system or thyroid hormone, for instance, or if you did thyroid replacement therapy, there's evidence that that drives more brown fat formation. But the problem is that these current drugs, they're not very specific for for activating the brown fat. And so you get lots of other side effects, which means you can't really use them as an effective drug or a safe drug. One thing about the BMP8B that we think it makes it more interesting is if we could develop maybe a new way to target that pathway that BMP8B signals through, it does seem to be very specific to this thermogenic mechanism. We didn't really find any evidence in our studies to suggest that BMP8B does other things to metabolism and, and changes other aspects of physiology. Does it keep the cells alive? Um, is it trophic? Is it a growth factor for brown fat? Because one argument I've had is that over your lifetime you lose your brown fat and this is why people tend to gain weight or have a tendency to put on more weight and feel the cold as they get older because they lose this tissue. Does it help to sustain the tissue if you have more of this BMP8B signal? No, I think it's important to make that distinction. It's slightly different to some of the other strategies that groups are working on to enhance brown adipose tissue function. We we have found that the BMP8B in brown fat just regulates the mature cells which are already there and makes them more active. However, its role in the brain, with its ability to increase the nervous tone, that could be trophic. So if you have more tone to the tissue, that's known to be a survival factor and, and, a, and a recruitment factor for more bats. So if you potentially through that mechanism, yeah. Andrew, thank you very much. That's uh, Dr Andrew Whittle. He is from the University of Cambridge Metabolic Research Laboratory and he published the work he's just been telling you about this week in the journal Cell. Thanks, Andrew. Now, also this week, we've heard of a match made in heaven. What about a match made in a cell? This is meiotic matchmaking. Now, one of the big questions in biology is when you want to make a sperm or an egg, it's really critical that you only have one copy of each of the chromosomes that are in your cells uh, in those gametes. You've actually got two copies of each of your main chromosomes, so how do you separate them? How do they know each other? How do they know? How does a cell count and know it's got one of each one? Well, there's an intriguing paper. It's in the journal Science this week, and it's by a lady from Japan called Da Chao Ding, 
she's based at the Advanced ICT Research Institute in Kobe, and she has found a gene called SME, SME2. And by using yeast, and in fact she used a type of yeast called Schizosaccharomyces pompei, it's a simple organism to study because it's only got a small number of chromosomes, unlike us, which have far more. What she's found this gene does is it doesn't actually code for anything in the cell, like a protein, like most genes do. What it instead does is it just makes a string of RNA, a short strand of genetic material. And by studying cells under a microscope, she saw that each of a pair of chromosomes produce from this SME2 gene a little string of this RNA message. These then form up and tangle to form a sort of dot-like structure in the cell. And then they rejoin to their original site on the chromosome where they came from. And this has the effect of tethering the two chromosomes together and aligning them correctly. And this is also very important because when chromosomes are preparing to make gametes, sperms or eggs, they also swap genetic material, the corresponding bits of each chromosome between them. That's called crossing over. And it helps to increase genetic diversity. But if they weren't going to swap the right bits between them, they would muddle up the genetic code and they would produce gametes that weren't viable. So although she says this isn't probably the only way in which the process happens, it's the first insight into a way in which chromosomes can recognise each other and then get themselves together in the correct alignment and in the correct order. I think that's great because I mean, certainly when you look at something like human cells trying to do meiosis, it's basically like trying to untangle 46 balls of string and then line them all up. So no, that's uh, really interesting stuff. And now, with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, including how flatulent dinosaurs may have helped to warm up the world, here's Mira Senthillingham with our Naked Scientist News Flash. The severity of a virus and its effects on the body could soon be predicted using a new technique developed by scientists at the University of Leeds and published in the journal Proteomics. Julian Hiscox and colleagues are developing a barcode system where thousands of proteins within a cell infected by a virus can be analysed at once to identify any changes in the balance of these proteins and predict the pathogenic potential of the virus on the body. The types and levels of proteins affected by infection varies between viruses, allowing the team to determine a unique barcode for each type. A cell can be seen as a battleground for virus infection, so you've got the virus coming in on the one hand, trying to destroy the cell and make more virus, and then the cell on the other hand is trying to stop that virus from doing its nasty work. We're able to capture a snapshot of that battle and then work out from the proteins we studied whether the battle is going to go in favour of the virus or in favour of the cell. Effectively, it allows you to develop a, a diagnostic tool to work out whether something is going to be of a serious clinical nature or not. A new weak spot has been identified in the West Antarctic ice sheet, which could result in a sea level rise of up to 4 millimetres per year. Writing in Nature, Hartmut Helmer from the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research modelled air temperatures and ocean currents in the Weddell Sea, a region of Antarctica previously thought not to affect nearby ice shelves and found that rising air temperatures and an increase in warm ocean currents flowing in towards the Filchner-Ron ice shelf could cause this ice shelf to melt and become more mobile. What we see is that by the year 2070, the coastal current with temperatures like today will be redirected and enter the Filchner-Ronny ice shelf cavity. This will cause an increase in basal melting. This basal melting will reduce the buttressing of the ice shelf, the ice shelf will accelerate, and that allows the drainage of more ice from inland. The major implication of this draining of inland ice is sea level rise. Sharing personal thoughts and views with others activates reward centres in the brain, according to scientists at Harvard University. Working with human volunteers and publishing in the journal PNAS, Diana Tamir monitored brain activity in participants as they answered questions about their personal opinions as well as the opinions of others. She found that as volunteers spoke about themselves, the brain's nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, which are both associated with reward, became active. In everyday life, we see that humans engage in self-disclosure. They do this in naturalistic conversation. They do it over the internet. We know already that humans are an inherently social creature. Um, and I think this sheds light onto one 
aspect of our social behavior, which is the way in which we interact with other people. We're highly motivated to share information about ourselves with other people. And I think it's kind of the give and take of sharing information about yourself and receiving information from other people that helps us to form social bonds and to basically engage in a, in a highly social world. And finally, dinosaurs could have greatly warmed up the planet during their existence due to their flatulence. By scaling up the annual levels of the gas methane currently produced by the digestive tract of cows, David Wilkinson from Liverpool John Moores University calculated the potential methane output of sauropods, an order of large herbivorous dinosaurs which includes Brontosaurus. His team estimated the sauropods would have generated 520 million tonnes of methane each year due to the large populations of microbes living inside them. The microbes living in sauropod dinosaurs and other large herbivorous dinosaurs could have been producing so much methane that it might have been having an effect on the way that the actual climate of the planet worked. And this is just a, a, an extraordinary idea that little microbes in giant dinosaurs could be having a measurable effect on the workings of the whole planet's climate. And this work was published in the journal Current Biology talk about the winds of change. Uh, that's Mira Senthilingham with our Naked Scientist News Flash. Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com news. When a volcano explodes, it ejects material ranging from rocks the size of cars to the smallest particles of ash. This ash can travel thousands of miles to form an invisible layer on the landscape. And by studying these microscopic grains, scientists can date archaeological sites and this can help to clarify the effects of environmental and climatic change, or even determine the movement of the human population within the last 100,000 years. Sue Nelson met up with Dr Christine Lane and Victoria Cullen at the University of Oxford's Research Laboratory for Archaeology, and Christine began by showing some of the variety of material erupted from a volcano. These are some samples that I collected in the field from various places, which are from close to volcanic sources, so a bit different to what we look at normally. And one of them is a pumice, a bit like you'd use in the bath, very light rock, full of air. This rock is what we call an obsidian, and it's actually made of exactly the same material as this pumice. It's glass, but it's um, got no air bubbles in it, so it's really heavy and it's much denser. But what we're looking at in the lab here is the same material, but it's travelled maybe thousands, up to maybe three to 5,000 kilometres from the source. So what we're looking at now is volcanic ash. And you can see it looks much more like dust, just particles of dust or very small grains, like sand-sized grains. And you have a specific name for this scale, this size of ash, don't you? All material erupted from a volcano, when it's erupted explosively, we call tephra. And tephra is actually the Greek word for ash. Victoria, you're going to show me, aren't you, exactly what that looks like? As Christine says, it's actually glass. And if you can imagine when you break a glass in your house, it fractures in very distinct ways, very sharp edges. And in some locations, you get these bubbles as well, which are also kept within these glass shards. So if I get some slides out for you now, we can actually look at what it looks like down a microscope. If I get you to look down there, and you can see some very pinky, purpley-looking shards of glass. Do you know what? It reminds me of a child's kaleidoscope. If you were to find this in an archaeological or environmental site, you wouldn't actually be able to see it physically looking at the site. So this is why it's called cryptotephra, or hidden secret tephra, also known as microtephra. So when we look at certain sites, because it's travelled so far, it's so fine, it's so small, when it's deposited, it's just invisible to the naked eye. And then we come onto a microscope and actually look if tephra's there in the first place. So now that we know, obviously, that we've got tephra, where do you go from here? We take them down to the microprobe and we analyse them for their chemistry. Every glass from a single eruption has one composition, one chemical composition, which is frozen at the time of the explosion. And that composition acts like a fingerprint. So we can identify from a tephra, the composition of a tephra shard, which eruption it came from. This looks like a sort of giant microscope, effectively. Yes, this is our electron microprobe. It works at much higher resolutions, but it also has four different what we call spectrometers, and these are effectively the detectors that record the composition of the material we put in there. Okay, if I just choose a little grain to focus in on, on the computer console, we can have a look at that here. And it looks quite complicated because there's a lot of different columns on it. But the one we want to look at is this column here, which is the weight percent oxide. And this tells us for each element 
Um, I can see so there that sodium, sodium, magnesium, aluminium, silicon. These are all in ash. Yeah, these are just the what we call the major and minor elements. So these are the main constituents of this ash. There are other elements, trace elements in there. So you can see that the greatest composition is silica. They're silicate materials, like all volcanic rocks. So silica, aluminium, sodium, iron and potassium, and sometimes calcium are the main elements that we're measuring. And what can you actually learn from analysing these bits of ash, this tephra? We're looking in records where we have a story already. So we might have um, an archaeological site which tells a story of what the population in that site have been doing when they've been there, what sort of um, behaviour they've been doing, what tools they've been making. Or we might be working in environmental records, so sediments accumulated in the bottom of a lake over time, which record changes in vegetation or the landscape around the lake basin. And by finding these tephra layers or the same tephra layers in different sites, we can link up those records. So where we have a population in a cave and we find evidence for them just below a tephra layer, if we find the same tephra layer in a lake record that tells us what the climate was doing at the time that eruption took place, we can infer that that was also that the climate at the time of that hominin population was there. So we're using them as marker layers to transfer climatic and environmental information between sites. Christine Lane and Victoria Cullen from the University of Oxford. They were talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson about the enlightening properties of volcanic ash. And you can hear a longer version of that interview on the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find on thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. Chris Smith and Katani with you. We're discussing chronic fatigue syndrome this week. So far, we've heard about some of its symptoms, the possible predictors for its onset, and the potential for a diagnostic test. But now we're going down to the cellular level to look at the changes which might be causing the disease. Naked scientist Louise Anthony has been investigating how we study this and what's been found so far. Think back to the last time you had the flu. You probably had some muscle pain and a bad headache, felt completely exhausted, and you might even have had trouble thinking straight. Most people get over the flu and other viral infections, including glandular fever, in a few weeks or so. But for a few people, those symptoms continue for months and years afterwards, becoming chronic fatigue syndrome. Not everyone with chronic fatigue syndrome has a viral infection before they develop the disease, but many patients do, and it is often the flu or glandular fever. And although chronic fatigue syndrome was first defined in 1988, we still don't know how or why these viral infections seem to be able to trigger the condition. And in fact, we have very little idea of what's happening in patients' bodies to cause their symptoms. Post-mortem studies are one of the best places to start. Now, a team including Dr Dominic O'Donovan from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge and Dr Abhishek Chowdhury from Queen's Hospital in Romford has looked at the nervous systems of four patients who suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome. Here's what Dr Chowdhury has to say. It is quite clear that there is an abnormality that is directed towards specific parts of nervous system. So what abnormalities did they find? In the first patient Dr O'Donovan examined, he found large numbers of deposits called corpora amylacea spread throughout the brain and spinal cord. Professor Perry is the Professor of Experimental Neuropathology at Southampton University, and although he wasn't involved in the study, he has given us his opinion of the findings. Corpora amylacea are little deposits that are seen in the brain of quite a lot of people who have different types of neurodegenerative disease. Precisely what their significance is, I think, is really unclear, except that they are usually associated with tissue degeneration. So they could be the deposits, if you like, evidence of a degeneration process. This finding suggests that nerve cells in the patient's brain and spinal cord were being damaged or destroyed while he was still alive. But it tells us nothing about what was causing that damage. The next patient the team looked at might provide the answer. There was inflammation in the dorsal root ganglia. These are structures near where the sensory nerves enter the spinal cord and normally they only contain nerve cells and a few supporting structures. But Dr O'Donovan found immune cells infiltrating these ganglia. And these immune cells, which are called cytotoxic T cells, normally kill other cells in the body in order to control viral infections or to remove damaged cells. 
previous work has shown that patients with chronic fatigue syndrome often have more of these T-cells in their blood. But what does it mean if they are infiltrating the dorsal root ganglia? Professor Perry again. The dorsal root ganglia are the neurons that convey sensory information into the spinal cord. And that sensory information includes pain, temperature, pressure and so forth, where possibly pain information is the most important of all in this context, as we know that there are many people with CFS who complain of pain in their extremities. So to then find around those neurons evidence of inflammation, which is what the T-cells are telling us, is there's some sort of inflammatory response, is of itself very interesting. Both Professor Perry and Dr O'Donovan agree that this inflammation could be causing referred pain, meaning the muscle and joint pain people with chronic fatigue syndrome often experience could actually be the result of their own immune systems attacking these nerves in the dorsal root ganglia. And when Dr O'Donovan stained the dorsal root ganglia of two other patients to detect T-cells, he found the same inflammation, although milder. So all the chronic fatigue patients included in this study had either active inflammation in their peripheral nervous system or signs of a degenerative process in their spinal cord and brain. But it's not clear how or if the inflammation is related to the degeneration found in that first patient, particularly as they're affecting different parts of the nervous system. And with only four patients, this is a very small study, and much more work is needed before we can be sure what these preliminary findings might mean. In particular, it is very important that we compare patients with chronic fatigue syndrome with people who do not have the disease. But this part of the nervous system is not normally examined in detail during a post-mortem. Nonetheless, these results could be an interesting starting point for future research, as Dr Chowdhury points out. The fact that we are seeing an abnormality should persuade us to undertake more focused research into the neuroimmunological aspects of the disease. And could the fact that T-cells are involved in controlling viral infections such as glandular fever be the link between these infections and chronic fatigue syndrome? We'll just have to wait and see. Louise Anthony, she was talking with Professor Hugh Perry from Southampton University and Dr Abhijit Chowdhury from Queen's Hospital in Romford. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking chronic fatigue syndrome this week. Our guest uh, is Dr Esther Crawley. She is from Bristol University and she's with us. Kat's uh, beginning to rack up all of your questions that are coming in, Kat. We've had a lot of questions in on this. The first one's from Catherine Hiscox in Hamel Hempstead. She says that her doctor doesn't think CFS exists. And also, she's often tired. How does she know if it is CFS or if it's just she's just tired? Yes, I think uh, doctors not believing in this illness is still very common, which which I find surprising, actually, given the evidence, uh, given the chief medical officer a long time ago said it was a real illness that needed to be taken seriously and given national guidance on what to do about this. But even so, we know that only 52% of GPs feel confident in making a diagnosis, and I think we, we still need to do a lot of awareness raising. If you're feeling tired, what should you do? Well, first of all, remember, it's only uh, tiredness that actually stops you doing something stuff so most of us if we're doing a lot of things uh, are going to feel tired so this is tiredness that is really awful and will stop you going to work going to school uh, doing socializing or doing sport if you think you might have chronic fatigue syndrome the national guidance says that you should have a, a range of screening bloods to exclude other illnesses such as leukemia or thyroid disease you should go and see uh, a doctor to exclude other causes such as depression and so on and if all of those other illnesses have got it and you fit the criteria then you've probably got chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, Esther, um, Graham Hilder got in touch by text and this is just sort of reacting partly to what you've just said because he says his girlfriend is suffering from CFS and he's saying that finding a doctor who has any idea what to do about this is the challenge. So based on what you've just said... What should people do? Is there a sort of centre that they can go to? Yes, there's a lot of centres, especially for adults, and not so many for children. The Action for MEs, one of the adult charities, has a list of all the centres and a map, so you can actually click on them and find out the nearest centre. We've got a slightly related question from Katie Norfolk, who says, why is it taken so long for CFS to be accepted as an illness? 
It's hard to understand that when you see so many people uh, suffering with this. It's uh, stigmatising on us. I think a lot of people don't understand it because they don't necessarily see when the person's unwell. So if you remember, I said it's a very fluctuating illness. So people often see their colleagues or their friends on good days and don't see them on bad days, and that makes it much harder to accept. But also we don't have a clear understanding of what causes it and we don't have a medicine to give it. And that sort of vagueness makes it much harder for people to really believe in it. Esther, to finish us off, Emilio Romero's got in touch on Facebook and says, I've just finished a 17-mile run. He says he's pleasantly tired, but he doesn't think he's fatigued. But can continuous straining exercise generate chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, that's a great question, actually. Yeah, this illness is much more common in athletes. And in fact, a teenager once told me that uh, and she was training for the Olympics that 20% of Olympiads had had it. I don't actually know if that's true or not. But certainly, if you are doing an awful lot of exercise and not allowing yourself time to recover, uh, I think you are at increased risk of developing it. And my service for children is in Bath, and uh, we see a lot of athletes with this illness. But kids don't get told to stop running around because they might no. get too tired. No, of course, and they shouldn't be told to stop running around. We all know that children aren't doing enough exercise. But when a child gets uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, it's very, very difficult to treat when they're younger children because running around is so natural. So on a good day, they'll do loads and loads of running around, and on a bad day, they can't get out of bed. Oh, dear. Esther Crawley from Bristol University. Thank you, Esther. Right, we're talking of hard-to-answer questions. We'd better get on with our question of the week this week and respectfully putting our socks back on, here is Hannah Critchlow. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week we hone our noses and sniff out the answer to this stinker of a question. This is David Forney from Johannesburg in South Africa and I have a question for you. Tell me, why do toenails smell like cheese? So, why do toenails, and even feet in general, smell cheesy? With the answer is Kevin Kerr, consultant medical microbiologist at Harrogate District Hospital. Well, you could turn the question round the other way and ask, why do cheesy smell like feet? And if you did, you'd come up with the same answer. And the answer is bacteria. Bacteria called brevibacteria, which are used to ripen or mature certain types of cheeses, can also be found growing harmlessly on the skin of humans, especially areas where it's warm and moist, such as sweaty feet. As the bacteria grow, they produce compounds which smell, well, cheesy. And the chemicals responsible for this powerful, pungent odour are sulphur-containing compounds known as S-methyl thioesters. And if you've eaten asparagus, you may well find that your wee smells funny too. And again, it's those S-methyl thioesters that you've got to thank, or blame, for your smelly wee. You may find something that actually looks like cheese underneath your toenails. So, does this mean our bacterial friend Brevibacterium is actually making cheese under your nails? Well, it may look like cheese, uh, but it certainly wouldn't taste like cheese, because what's going on here is that you've probably got a fungal infection in your nail. And the name for that is onychomycosis. Onychomycosis can be tricky to treat, so it's best to see your family doctor to discuss the available treatment options. And onychomycosis toenail infections are caused by fungi known as dermatophytes. And these dastardly dermatophytes produce an enzyme which acts on the nail. Bad news for the nail, but good news for the fungus, as the enzyme, called keratinase, breaks down the keratin in the nail to provide tasty treats for the dermatophyte. So the cheesy appearance, that yellow and thickening nail, represents the damage done to the nail by the fungus feasting on it. But the cheesy aroma, coming from the fetid feet, is from Brevibacterium festering between sweaty unwashed toes and producing stinky S-methyl thioesters. And you are likely to get both the Brevibacterium cheesy pong in combination with the fungi-eaten hardened toenail, as both seem to like similar warm, moist environments. Now, pressing on to ponder our next question. Hi, my name's Mark Andrew, and I'm a photographer in Sheffield. My question is, is it possible to create a magnet so powerful that it crushes the object it attracts? For example, can you make a fridge magnet that's so strong that it would cause a fridge to collapse? Thanks in advance. So, can we make a magnet that squashes, rather than sticks to, your white goods? 
Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com slash forum. Thank you very much. That's the ever-fragrant Hannah Critchlow. Back next week, of course. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Our thanks go to Esther Crawley, Julia Newton and Andrew Whittle, our guests and our production team this week, Mira Senthalingam, Louise Anthony, Ben Vassler and Tom Simpkins. We're talking metals next week with the next generation of superior alloys. We'll take a metal from conception right through to the middle of a jet engine. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you at the same time next week. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.